Welcome to the Voices of Brahmaputra, a podcast where we bring diverse stories from the basin, depicting the local community's association with the river from a socio-cultural perspective. I am your host, Anamika Barwa, a professor in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences, Indian Institute of Technology, Guwahati, in India. Today, we will be talking about politics around the Brahmaputra Basin with our special guests, Salina Ho, Saida Rizwana Hassan, and Sumit Pej. Let's get started. I hope you all have enjoyed our previous podcast session, which was on the science of the Brahmaputra, where we endeavored to understand how science-based evidence can help in better understanding of the river to address its many socio-political issues. This is the third session in this series of podcasts, which intends to focus on the power interplay that has long shaped the transboundary water interaction in the Brahmaputra River Basin. Speaking of our guests, today on the show, we are excited to have Salina Ho. She is an assistant professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, National University of Singapore. Saida Rizwana Hassan, she is an environmental lawyer enrolled with the Supreme Court of Bangladesh. And Sumit Vij, he is a postdoctoral fellow in the Public Administration and Policy Group, Wageningen University, Netherlands. Considering they have devoted a good part of their lives studying the major socio-political intricacies around the Brahmaputra River, or more accurately, the Yalong Sangpo Brahmaputra Jamuna River, they are going to share their expertise on the basin. Water security is equated with prosperity and overall development. Hence, the approach to water, especially amongst regions of differentiated accessibility, has always been that of contestation. The Brahmaputra River that originates in China with its tributaries in Bhutan, run downstream through India and Bangladesh, which has raised serious concerns for regional stability. On one hand, China and India are actively engaged in harnessing the potential of the river, while on the other hand, Bangladesh faces human security pressure like to be magnified by practices on the upstream. This session, Politics Around the Brahmaputra Basin, is therefore an endeavor to understand the deep politics and power play around the Brahmaputra in order to improve the quality of hydro diplomacy. Sumit, Salina, and Rizwana, welcome to the Voices of Brahmaputra. <laughs> Good 
Given the palpable tension around the Brahmaputra, it will be fascinating to know at how many levels the river is politicized and the range of stakeholders involved. So Sumit, if you can tell us, how does politics and power among the riparian countries affect the water interaction amongst these countries? Brahmaputra River Basin is quite unique when we speak about the questions of power, politics, or the power interplay per se. Compared to other river basins in South Asia, like the Ganges and the Indus, uh, Brahmaputra is comparatively depoliticized. And when I say depoliticized, I mean it is not discussed as the issue of importance at the highest level of political leadership. This is particularly because of the historical border rivalries between the riparians and also the securitization of data around the river. It's also unique because the basin is shared by two hegemons, India and China, and both of them follows the principle of bilateralism in their diplomacy and negotiations. And what it does is it doesn't somewhere allow all the riparians to come together to discuss this, to discuss the issues of water sharing, discuss the issues of flood, disasters, or to develop infrastructure. I think because of these complexities attached with the Brahmaputra River Basin, there is a lack of trust between the riparians. And it has been since the past and each nation pays a huge cost of non-cooperation. Like we know, almost all on the annual basis, we see that Brahmaputra River gets flooded in the lower valley of Assam, but also in Bangladesh, there's a loss of livelihood, infrastructure, but also flora and fauna. And we somehow, as riparian nations, do not consider the cost of non-cooperation there. And I think that's where I would say that the power and politics on the Brahmaputra River Basin has a massive cost around it. Thank you, Sumit. This is in fact a very critical observation and talking about riparian countries, China being upper riparian and India being a middle riparian country, they definitely have fair shares of issues. Although China and India have not yet established robust mechanisms for cooperation on the Brahmaputra River and have little institutionalized cooperation as well, yet both the sides have managed to keep their riparian relations to some extent cordial around water in particular. So, Selena, how does the politics and power between India and China affect the water interaction between these two countries? I think I will make two key points here, actually. Um, the first point is that the water dispute between China and India is really part of the larger, uh, broader set of relations between the two countries. Uh, this means that water is not just about water alone, but it is linked to the border dispute which means the efforts to, receive, to resolve the water dispute is complicated and subject to uh, border developments. 
And uh, we have actually seen this, right? During the Doklam standoff in 2017, China actually withheld hydrological data on the Brahmaputra and Sulej rivers from India, um, despite the fact that the two sites have signed MOUs on data sharing. And then more recently, during and in, in the aftermath of the border clashes between China and India in the Gawan Valley from May last year, satellite images actually reveal that China has constructed a dam to block the flow of the Gawan River. And that it, it, it is part of the Indus River that originates from Aksai Chin, another disputed territory that is controlled by China and claimed by India. Now, that's the first point, that there is this larger context of their relations in the background that we have to bear in mind. And the second point I want to make is that there is a power asymmetry between China and India. Now, although both countries are rising powers and rapidly growing economically, India is nevertheless behind China in terms of economic and military developments. Now, how does this affect their power relations in the river dispute? Uh, basically, what we will see is that India as a somewhat weaker party, pays more attention to China than China does to India. So in other words, India may be oversensitive to Chinese actions, while China commits the error of not paying enough attention to India and becomes uh, you know, uh, insensitive to the concerns uh, that it, its actions may cause to India. There is this asymmetry in attention. And now this is dangerous because misperceptions and misunderstandings can result. Now this power asymmetry is also relevant to the upstream downstream relationship between them. If you will, India's concerns that China can use its position upstream as leverage in times of confrontation. And anyway, in a way, this, you know, uh, this actually Chinese actions in withholding data during the Dorkum standoff and building a dam across the Gowan River during the recent clashes seem to suggest that the Indians may be right. So, you know, having made these two points, though, I want to say that in normal times, uh, when relations are actually good between them, the governments on both sides have made really big efforts to desecuritize their water dispute. Now, this is unusual because virtually almost all the issues between the two sides from the border dispute, the Dalai Lama and the Tibet, have been securitized. Interesting take on the subject, Sabina. Thank you. Now, my next question is to Rizwana. Considering you are an environmental lawyer, how do you think the existing bilateral relations between riparian countries will have an impact upon the water body from the point of view of a natural resource? If we consider the present status, I don't think the existing bilateral arrangements are adequate or effective in lessening mistrust and tensions among the upper and lower riparian countries. There is no system in place that is inclusive, that is transparent, and that can be termed regional. But before I get into the impact of bilateral relationships upon the river, let me make one point clear. I don't think our negotiators view rivers as life systems. To them, rivers are uh, more hydropower, irrigation, drainage, port access, and so on. While there are discussions on political economy, socioeconomic aspect of river management, ecological aspects are hardly discussed at the negotiation level. I've never seen strong presence of ecologists in the negotiation teams. 
These are heavily filled in with engineers and bureaucrats. As a result, even at bilateral level, we have not managed to make sharing of environmental impact assessment or social impact assessment legally mandatory for projects on shared rivers. The agreements on sharing of information also are largely not complied with. There's hardly any discussion on the survival needs of the rivers and their aquatic resources. We never hear negotiators saying that if flow goes down below a given point, this fish species will disappear and there will be ecological disaster. All we hear is the quantum of water for winter and for monsoon. Since there is hardly any nature-based approach in bilateral discussions, the facts that rivers give birth to life and civilizations, that rivers sustain life, that rivers are for life remain missing. The power imbalance at the bilateral level makes things worse. To me, it is important to first fix our domestic river protection policies and vision, make the same nature-centric, and then carry that value in negotiations and discussions over shared rivers like the Brahmaputra. The fact that this river is still not massively disturbed by mega projects, there is still scope to manage it in an ecologically uh, sustainable way. At the regional level, when trying to take schemes on shared rivers, we must not lose sight of the climatic threats that will make freshwater scarce for all of us. So instead of using the misconceived strength of upper riparians, we must engage in a process that will first save the river itself and then keep it alive for all living creatures that are dependent on it. I think the countries involved should seriously consider ratifying the UN Convention of 1997 that equally emphasizes on equitable utilization and protection of the wetlands. In a civilized and an interconnected world, the notion of absolute territorial sovereignty has become redundant. We must have common legal grounds and principles to guide our courses of actions so that we don't harm the rivers and our neighbors. Rivers are our common heritage and there is benefit for all in protecting the same. Indeed, very relevant insight. In fact, prioritizing the conservation of the water body as a natural resource and advocating for its well-being might just solve many of the issues that we have currently. It can substantially inform better water governance too. Hence, I would like to ask you, Sumit, what can be the role of hydro diplomacy in bringing the riparian countries together? Like I mentioned earlier, there is no track one level diplomacy in the river basin as of now. And this is particularly due to the securitization and also various myths and controversies around the river, especially which comes in the media reports. Therefore, we need a continuous track two and track three level diplomacy, which brings these journalists, civil society organizations, community-based organizations, activists together to discuss about the issues of Brahmaputra. What will happen eventually is that these deliberations between various stakeholders would reduce 
the myths and controversies around the river. And I think this is one of the key roles of hydro diplomacy. I think we have to also see this in a larger world political cycle around the world. What is happening is that we are going through a phase where there is an inclination towards nationalistic and populistic governments. And what they are attempting is to really establish strong nations, or I would say perception of strong nations. And I think in, the, in such scenarios, it is very, very crucial that track three, track two level hydro diplomacy does happen. It will reduce a lot of controversies and uncertainties about the issues of the river. And it will also help simultaneously to build trust among these. It is, I would say, utterly important to take such a diplomatic approach where you can discuss and deliberate on the key issues of cooperation rather than escalating conflicts. Indeed, a very relevant insight, so thank you. Moreover, given that most of the water-centric issues are political in nature, majority of the times country representatives or politicians are considered as the key stakeholder to hydro-diplomacy. However, it is also essential to acknowledge other key stakeholders, as you have pointed out, hydro-diplomacy, like the media. So here, I would like to uh, first ask Selina, what kind of issues find space in the media reports from the Basin nations? Does the media play a role in influencing hydro-diplomacy? Uh, actually, this, this question that you have is a really nice follow-up um, from my previous uh, point about how the Indian and Chinese governments in normal peacetime actually try to desecuritize the water dispute. Now, the effort the two sides take to desecuritize is really because the media, at least on the Indian side, tend to play up the China threat. Um, so the Indian media, in addition to politicians and pundits, often hold China responsible for the disasters of floods that uh, happen uh, periodically in Assam and in Arunachal Pradesh. They tend to paint China as weaponizing water to threaten the security of the Indian Northeast, particularly in territories that are disputed between them. So if for instance, the, the, uh, the Assam Tribune has written, and I quote, that the damming of the Brahmaputra in Tibet by China for large scale power generation and irrigation has to be regarded as a big worry for India in view of its adverse implications for the Northeast, end quote. Now, whether it be floods or dams, Chinese activities upstream are really seen as an existential threat to the Indian Northeast by the groups that live around there and, and painted as such by the media. So in a way, the media does play a role in complicating issues uh, for the two governments who are trying to desecuritize the issue during peacetime. Now, Indian experts have actually come forward to clarify that the Yalongzangpu, which is uh, the name of the river before it enters India, uh, the name of the river uh, as it is known in Tibet, uh, is actually a minor contributor to the flow of the Brahmaputra as most of the Brahmaputra's flows come from tributaries within India itself. Now on the Chinese side, the media is state controlled. We all know that. So the amount of what they can do in terms of in hydro diplomacy is dictated by the government. Now, um, it, with the exception of maybe perhaps the Global Times where nationalist sentiments are expressed, it is an outlet for all these kind of nationalistic 
kind of sentiments for, for the Chinese side. Now, uh, the focus in the, in the Global Times has mainly been on the border disputes and the clashes. Now, on the water dispute itself, uh, there isn't much that is said except as an effort to reassure India that dams will not cut off water from India as they will have little effect on the water volume in downstream countries. And also very constantly you will see in Chinese rhetoric, you know, this, this, this rhetoric that India has to give up this, and I quote, zero sum adversarial, adversarial mentality and instead move forward on uh, mutual cooperation and development. Thanks, Anamika. Sumit, what is your take on this? I think what is happening in the recent past around the Brahmaputra River Basin is that the media reporting has been mostly happening around hydropower issues. Of course, uh, when we talk about varied interest and priorities between the river basins or river riparians particularly, it is an issue which can escalate a lot of controversies but also conflicts. So I think media reporting has a very important role in building the narratives among the people of each country. And these narratives are not necessarily positive only. Sometimes negative narratives are also created. And this is particularly due to the lack of inadequate interlinkages or strong interlinkages between scientists and media reporters. To reduce or to change this phenomenon of negative reporting, I think that we need to have strong research component in the Brahmaputra River Basin. And what we can really start, or what one initiative which can really help to reduce these controversies is to do basin-wide research. Rather than conducting research at individual nation level, if we conduct studies, research studies at the basin level, it will reduce these controversies and the science would help to create these positive narratives about the river, but also help to change, help to change the narrative about their riparians, about the neighbors. Such studies would also impact how we can positively think about hydropower development, future adaptation measures, because climate change will have a very serious impact on the Brahmaputra River Basin. There are already studies establishing that. So I think this is how we can take it forward about media reporting by creating, first of all, strong interlinkages with the scientific community, but also conduct basin-wide research to establish facts and appropriate signs to change the negative narrative. Thank you both for sharing these interesting insights. I would now like to draw the attention of the room to a widely acknowledged but rarely analyzed group of stakeholders, that is the women. Just like the men, women have been living with the rivers for centuries, yet the discourse around hydro diplomacy is hardly considerate of the differentiated vulnerability of women as well as their differentiated access to decision making. So Rizwana, I have two questions for you. How to recognize the lived experiences of women as political and bring it to the international realm of hydro diplomacy? And the second is, do you think that adding women to negotiation table will ensure a gender sensitive framework to hydro diplomacy? 
Let me start answering this question by quoting two lines from a very popular Bengali song. Uh, I will first say the lines in Bengali and then translate the same. So the two lines go, Ekhane Ramoni gulo narir moto, nodio narir moto kothakai. These lines mean here, women are like rivers and rivers speak like women. In water diplomacy, it is always Cusack and never people. Our political leaders go to the negotiation tables without first discussing the demands with the river dependent people. So it's always a macro level thing and never a micro level or a bottom up process. Our fisher folk, our farmers, our boatmen, sorry, I failed to find the gender neutral term for this, do not know what the government is asking for on their behalf or for their river, which is their lifeline. That is why when governments plan for mega projects like the river linking project and get the same endorsed by the judiciary, you see people's organizations, people's movement fighting those back. They know precisely what will lead to deaths of their lifelines. So when people have no role in the negotiation process, asking for space for women and getting it guaranteed will be extra challenging. That does not mean it's not required. Women as the primary water and food supplier for the family has much deeper connection with rivers. In rural areas of South Asia, large number of women still bathe in the river water. The fish supply for the family, which in the case of Bangladesh uh, is the only animal protein intake for 60% of our people, comes from the rivers and women as collectors of fish suffer greatly when the polluted or dried up rivers run out of stock. In the case of Bangladesh, most disasters are water related. Disasters like river erosion, floods, cyclone have peculiar impacts on women. The displaced women face double jeopardy. They lose access to their only natural resource base and they also face tremendous social challenges. I therefore have reasons to believe that if negotiations are not gender just, they're not just at all. Keeping women at bay can never lead to water justice. Although in South Asia, we have many women leaders holding top political positions, this hasn't changed the key negotiation issues. They're still very centered around QSEC and structured around mega projects and not survival needs of rivers and the river dependent people. I think the civil society actors can play a definite role here, at least, in ensuring that the civil society dialogues on transboundary water justice do not miss gender perspectives. We also can engage in capacity building of women so that they can claim their legitimate space in the negotiation process. Thank you for describing it so well. I completely agree with you, Rizwana. In fact, we need to take these issues into account to deliver gender sensitivity hydro diplomacy. And this is also the reason we need more women practitioners working on the Brahmaputra. 
As we see, there are many challenges, but also a lot of opportunities to work around, which I believe will be relevant for the emerging researchers as well as for enriching the existing research around the Brahmaputra. I guess our listeners have enjoyed listening to these diverse views. This brings us to the end of this session. Thanks to Ms. Saida Rizwana Hassan, Dr. Sumit Vij, and Dr. Selina Ho for joining this intriguing discussion on the politics around the Brahmaputra Basin. We hope it was a valuable session for our listeners, and we also hope a lot of our listeners will be benefited by these fresh insights. podcast is an outcome of an effort put in by several people and hence let me take this opportunity to thank them for making this podcast possible first of all the ministry of foreign affairs the netherlands for supporting our project science communication for water diplomacy in the brahmaputra thanks to the partners and coordinating team and also to all the guests who have contributed to our podcasts and of course to our listeners Thanks for following us and for your continuous feedback. If you enjoyed this session, be sure to come back next week for a discussion on the culture of the Brahmaputra Basin, which will again be joined by some eminent water experts. Until then, this is Anamika Barua signing off. Oh, my God.